Thanks to EQ Bank for sponsoring this episode of Explore FI Canada. The EQ Bank Savings Plus account reimagines banking by offering an everyday 2.45% interest rate, plus the flexibility of a checking account, along with unlimited transactions, no everyday banking fees, no minimum balances, and fast, cheap, and fully transparent international money transfers, and more, all from one account. Visit exploreficanada.ca forward slash EQ Bank to learn more. Hello and welcome to Explorify Canada podcast. Join us as we sit with other Canadians at the roundtable to discuss and sometimes argue about financial independence in Canada. Hi, welcome to Explore FI Canada. Today at the roundtable, there's three of us here. It's Money Mechanic and also my co-host Chrissy from Vancouver. Hello, Money Mechanic. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. And excited to introduce today's guest is the Fringe Doc from the lovely province of Alberta. Hi there. Uh, great to be here. Thanks. Look, looking forward to it. We've got lots to talk about. You uh, sent us a very detailed list of, uh, of great topics to cover. So just introduce yourself quickly and then uh, Chrissy will run through a, a top down of, of what we're going to try and tackle today. Sure. Uh, I'm originally from the uh, Toronto area. I uh, had something of a uh, blue-collar upbringing, somehow uh, made it into uh, medical school with a bit of a circuitous path, and then to help subsidize things, uh, joined the military, got posted to uh, to Alberta, have been here since, now have a family of five, and I've got kind of a niche uh, practice where I'm mostly working in uh, corrections and uh, doing telemedicine. Excellent. I, I think your path into medicine is quite unique. And uh, you outlined a lot of that in one of your emails to us. And I just want to cover the seven points that you sent to us, because I think a lot of them are very actionable and would be helpful for our audience uh, to see how you've come to this place where you're very financially stable. And I believe you said that you're coast fi at this point. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, I, as far as my understanding of the definition, uh, I can stop adding to the pile, take care of my living expenses, and then be virtually guaranteed to have a fairly nice or even lavish retirement uh, near traditional age, around 60. Pretty amazing. Well, let's let's head into the seven points that you sent us. I'll just list them off and then we will go through them one by one. So the first point that you sent us was that you chose a lucrative career path or profession. The second one was working my butt off. You said something <laughs> else, but I'll say butt just so we don't have to put <laughs> on this episode. <laughs> Number three, you married well. Number four, you did MOTP, which is Medical Officer Training Plan through the military. And we'll talk about that more. And number five, using a professional corporation for tax savings. Number six, your profession. And number seven, you try to live like, in quotes, like normal people, which I think a lot of us do in the FI community. So uh, let's head into number one. You chose a lucrative career path or profession and uh Based on what you told us, this was controversial from the upbringing you had. Yeah, I had the opportunity to uh, work as a temporary um, nuclear operator at a power plant. And it was the same facility where my father was. And there was only two people who had ever been hired uh, without kind of a formal background. It was based on interview and aptitude tests, et cetera. It was kind of a pilot program. 
And so at the time on a probational basis, I was making 1493 an hour um, as like a high school student in like the mid to late nineties kind of thing. And uh, so basically within a six month period, if I stayed there, my, my income would have immediately doubled in a path ahead to, uh, you know, to be in that kind of a career. Um, but I didn't want to do so just because I wasn't really that keen on, uh, on that particular field. And I wanted to go into uh, biology and uh, human health sciences type of thing. So it seems like quite a, a jump to go from, from where you were in the nuclear pro- project there to going into to medicine. That It seems to me like going down that path into medicine is a, a big, big uh, commitment and, and time and effort. So interesting that you made that choice and your next step is working your uh, butt off, as Chrissy says. So <laughs> I imagine that's uh, what you had to do. Oh, there's a saying that grad school is is impossible to get out of and medical school is impossible to get into. <laughs> and so I basically uh, ended up doing both of those things. Uh, you know, I, I had a you know good GPA uh, going around, but I didn't absolutely destroy the MCAT enough that I was a... Uh, a shoo-in. And of course, there's the the interview process, uh, which has got a subjective component, a bit of a dice roll, who, who you get mashed with. So the first time around I had, I was uh, interviewed and then waitlisted at two schools. And then uh, I figured I'll be produ- make a productive use of my time uh, to reapply later on. So I did a, a master's and then I got in uh, and then I had to basically, you know, work uh, really hard to uh, complete the master's because they don't really like you just like, uh, you know, say I must finish by this particular time so that I can rush off to do my real job to go to medical school, become a doctor. Like it's, they kind of don't like that attitude. It sort of feels like you're dissing science or research to them. Um, but uh, with a lot of uh, struggling and some long hours, I was able to uh, manage that. Uh, yeah. Hey listeners, I decided to skip over Fringe Doc's third point, marrying well, because we covered this in previous episodes. But we realized that without an explanation, it could be taken out of context and misunderstood. So to clarify what Fringe Doc meant when he'd said marrying well, I'll read what he originally emailed us. Quote, Marrying well refers to having a support system and a partner who is philosophically compatible. My wife is more frugal than I, and she manages the nuts and bolts of most of our finances. This is a huge superpower for me. End quote. I think that's very well said, French Doc, and it does sound like you've married well. So thanks for letting me clarify, and my apologies for leaving that out, and we'll get back to the show now. So if it's okay, I'll jump ahead to number four, where you mentioned that you did medical the medical officer training plan and this is completely new to me so I, I think this is a really interesting I don't know if you want to call it a hack but it's it's a great way to get your education paid for uh, and even earn some money so could you talk more about that how did you get into this and what is this MOTP sure so uh, depending on um, how much they are in need of the uh, of the trade of physicians. They, they have different entry points. Uh, traditionally, they would accept you in second year. You know, you sort of you're in medical school. You haven't failed out right off the bat, so you know probably you're going to make it. And then uh, <laughs> that's kind of the uh, you know the pragmatic uh, in, you know approach. Then you basically sign on. Uh, you immediately become commissioned as a, a second lieutenant. Uh, you belong to them, but they leave you alone to do your training. In the summers, uh, if you have time in your schedule, they're going to try to, uh, you know, get you to go to basic training 
and do all your uh, trade courses for the military. It's like a separate, you know, medical training, but with a militarized uh, sort of uh, context. At the time, because they were particularly uh, short, there was a $40,000 signing bonus, which is how we bought our first car. And uh, yeah, then at the, at the time, the salary uh, was around high 40s, low 50s, uh, something like that. Uh, so it actually allowed my wife as well to uh, basically put her job on hold and, uh, you know, start having, uh, start having our kids, uh, you know, while I was in med school kind of thing. Uh, so basically you do that program, they subsidize you through your training, uh, and then you have a four's obligatory service, uh, and then you can, you can stay or go. Were you in uh, a red regular university for this training or was it specifically a uh, military school for medical training? Uh, yeah. I mean, like you, they don't have like a military medical school and they don't, they don't even have military uh, hospitals anymore. They used to. Um, so right. I mean, so I mean, the, I guess the one A one B part of MOTP, you could do it through like RMC, right. In uh Kingston area there, the uh, Royal Military College. Um, okay. If you want to do English or history, or uh, I think they have a few, they've got kind of some of the uh, harder sciences. I think they have chemistry and physics, but they have nothing under biosciences. Uh, so you could do it through their, uh, you know, through through their program. But no, basically this is the CVU approach they call it. So uh, you know, you you do all your thing according to your academic requirements, just like any other med student. But then in the summers, if you have any time off, they might say you got to come and do a course or whatever just to save time so you're not wasting your obligatory service doing stuff you could have already done during your earlier training. So how much do you think this changed your the cost of your of your training of your medical training? Do you have kind of like a ballpark of from the starting of your second year when you got into the MOTP to to finishing it? How much do you think you might have saved by going that route? Well, the tuition uh, at the time is in the high teens, um, like say 17, 18,000 uh, books and supplies, whatever, close to 20 a year for that. And then when you put in the actual salary, you know, call it 40 to 50K for easy math. So you're probably looking at, uh, you know, 60 to 70K uh, for second, third and fourth year of medical school. Now, the part that's a little bit up, a little bit dumb is that they also count their payments to you as a resident uh, as being them fund- footing the bill, which is partly true because the funding is coming from them. But even if they weren't paying the funding, you'd get paid the same amount through, you know, through the province of the school you were at anyways, kind of thing. So, so yeah, uh, technically it's coming from them, but really it's not additional money that you wouldn't have had already. But uh, when they calculate your indebtedness to them, it, it does count. So, Right. Well, that's some significant savings. I think for mm-hmm. a lot of those specialized type trainings, um, you know, I'd, I'd mentioned this on the show before, that's not anything that I ever considered in, with my technical training, but it definitely sounds like it's a great option for saving a whole bunch of money on education. Well, I just want to dig in some more because this seems to me like it's almost a no brainer, but there's uh, obviously there must be some costs and downsides. So I, I want to get into that a little bit. Um, what are some of the downsides or things that people need to know if they're going to pursue this type of training? The two single most important things, I suppose, are number one, uh, military is not known for being family compatible. Uh, they have a tongue in cheek saying that if the military intended for you to have a family, they would have issued you one. <laughs> 
<laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. So you're responsible for kind of sorting all that out and you may have to go somewhere uh, short notice. You may have to drag your, your family there, relocate, or maybe just you personally can go there, do your tasking and come back. So that's one thing. The other important thing is that once you sign the dotted line, the queen owns you. You might think it's like a job contract. It's not. It's a semi-legal, quasi-legal document through the military. Everything on the metaphorical left side of the page that you are obliged to provide is ironclad. Everything on the right side of the page that they're offering you, quote unquote, is completely at their whim. So some people join the military and this says, we're going to pay you this much. You're going to live here. You're going to be this rank. None of that is enforceable and can never be appealed. And they have their own their own legal system, their own court system, which is uh, unbreakable by the civilian system. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So there's there's a lot to consider, but uh, definitely sounds like it was worthwhile in, in your case. Yeah. Well, I want to take a little bit more. So if someone is interested in this path, because the savings are significant, how does someone pursue this? Do you have to go to certain schools? How do you apply? Or is it tough to get into this pro- program? My uh, friend's father, who's ex-Air Force, basically describes the process as um, a call center where a bunch of people are, are, are trying to contact these potential medical student doctors and then somebody yells out, we've got one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So not necessarily hard to get in. We've got a live one on the line. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the getting in is is it's not uh, like as long as you're in reasonably good health and even then like honestly there I was on basic training. They took a 57 year old high maintenance uh, personality uh, female candidate who literally had an artificial hip already, and uh, <laughs> we were wow. we practically were literally carrying her on her back to get her through basic training. And it was kind of like, you know, if she were going into some other trade, it would have been like, obviously, you're not suitable, but it's like, oh, you're a doctor. Well, don't worry. Like, because like accommodations. Are <laughs> Amazing. I'm okay. amazed that someone that age would want to put themselves through medical school. That's impressive. Yeah. No normal person would. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that's really interesting. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that you were able to educate us a little bit because uh, I think it's something that a lot of people might look into and pursue. You literally just have to go to whatever your local recruiting center is and uh, state your intentions. They'll have do you have to go in do a meeting with the captain there or whatever, fill out some paperwork, prove that you're a student in good standing, et cetera. And then, uh, yeah, they'll, they'll make it happen. Okay. And sorry, just one more question, a little bit more on, on the downsides. What are your obligations? Like maybe pick out some of the key ones that might be uh, no go for most people. Sure. So, I mean, you've got your four years of obligatory service and of course you've got training, you know, while you're, uh, while you're before that even period, while you're, while you're still uh, learning the tools of the trade kind of thing, um, and then while you're while you're in that service period, uh, you know they can say you're posted here, you're posted there. They don't really necessarily care about your preference of province or you know where your family wants to go. Mm. Um, and then, like for my first two years, I was only home six months out of twelve. I was off and doing all these training courses. And uh, sometimes doing field exercises, which is way worse than being on tour. So like being in a 
literally in a tent in the middle of Wainwright or Suffield, which is basically just like a, a mud bog. The cell service is so poor that you have to basically stand on top of like a, a truck and angle your phone a certain way to get something because there's no <laughs> towers there. You're lucky to get a shower like once a week. Kind of guy. I know guys who've been <laughs> in the field for a month, you know, doctors in the field that come out with no shower uh, the whole time. Right. And wow. uh, you basically have your tent. You've got your blue rockets and, you know, your, your porta potties, right? Uh, your dining hall and, and back. And that's it. And it's 24 seven, right? So, I mean, in theory, you can delegate, but like I'm laying there at two in the morning on my cot, listening to this medic bumble through this history or whatever, and is, you know, separated by like, you know, one millimeter canvas or whatever. And I'm like, there's no way I can sleep with this anyway. So I just like get up, throw half your uniform on, like basically the military equivalent of pajamas, shamble out there and then just kick the medic back to their tent and take care of the patient so you can go back to sleep. Oh, no. Yeah. All right. So it sounds like there's a little involved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not so easy. Well, good for you. Then there's the tours, which wasn't that, which isn't that bad. At least for me, it wasn't. I just had a... Uh, a three-month stint in Afghanistan, but like honestly, it was not a big oh. deal. It was like inside the wire stuff. Um, we we're closing it down, transferring everything to United States. Interesting. So I, I guess as a doctor, you probably see service slightly differently than someone who's on the front lines. Is that correct? Yes and no. It really depends. I, I've heard of doctors who were deplaced on the forward op- deployed to the forward operating bases, or who had to travel through hot zones. Uh, from one place to another and actually we're you know shooting outside the uh air sentry hatch of uh the the uh you know the armored ambulance that kind of thing it's one of those dice roll experiences may vary type of situations it's definitely a different type of path to becoming a doctor and i still even with the downsides you've named i'm sure it will appeal to a certain segment of the population so thank you for helping us learn more about it no problem Uh, So we'll move on to the next tip that you shared, which is using a professional corporation for tax savings. And this is something we think our audience will be really interested in, tax savings. It always (laughs) perks up a few years. So uh, you're a doctor, which is essentially means you're self-employed, I I assume. So you are able to open a corporation for yourself. So tell us more about how this saves you on taxes. Okay, just in a nutshell, high level, because I'm not the one who deals with my accountant or anything. Um, basically, so professional corporation means you you have uh, some of the tax benefits of a normal corporation, but you don't have any kind of a liability shield, right? So it doesn't doesn't mean that you can commit malpractice and then point to this invisible entity as the uh, you know as the person that they have to uh, seek. Uh, you know, retribution from from a taxation point of view, because of the moving parts to get it together, you need to have a, a separate lawyer uh, who takes care of that part of your of your business and, and does your your uh, annual minutes and everything. You need an accountant. Uh, the accountant's around three grand a year. The lawyer's around five hundred a year, uh, and then you pretty much have to have around high five digits into the corp per year uh, retained earnings uh, in order for it to make sense, like in order for you to start to pull ahead of those fixed costs. Um, but again, in a nutshell, uh, if you uh, leave retained earnings in the corporation and you just get taxed at the, uh, the business rate, uh, which last time I checked was around 15% for my situation in Alberta here. So then um, you have basically an extra bucket, right? You can, you can put stuff in your RRSP, you can put stuff in your TFSA, and that'll be 
you know, fully taxed as realized income uh, as any other Canadian until you put it in, right? And then it's like a regular personal tax return. But if those buckets are full, or if you have another reason you want to use a third bucket, then you can have the 15% tax and then you can basically do whatever you want inside the corp. And then it can be, uh, uh, it'll be taxed later, you know, when you take it out. But of course, the earnings were able to grow uh, sheltered for however many however many years you left it in there. Uh, there used to be benefits in terms of uh, income splitting uh, within the corp. Those aren't really happening anymore. There used to be a, you could decide whether to pay your spouse, uh, for example, uh, via dividends or via salary. If you chose to go by dividends, they were immune to the reasonableness test. Now there is a reasonableness test. So my wife is employed as a bookkeeper, but uh, you know we, we have to talk with our accountant to find out you know, what, what amount can we pay her so she's not going to get audited. And then there is this one still up in the air, but I have my children as uh, non-voting shareholders. So when they're 18, if I want to subsidize their education uh, via money from the corp using dividends, there may be a tax play there as well. But it's I don't know enough about it. And plus, to be honest, like it's a five or 10 year uh, in the future type of thing. So it's hard to know where the laws are going to be at that point. Yeah, I find this all quite interesting because I also use a corporation for the business that I do, but I don't generally keep a lot of money behind in there. And I never actually thought of it as the way you're describing it as a bucket, but it does make sense if you're just paying the 15% on that income that's going or the, the company corporate earnings that are going in there. Now, do you specifically invest within this corporation? Because that's one thing that I've never gotten into. I, I use the corporate funds to pay myself a salary. So I issue myself T4s every year as salary income that I have to pay tax on, but I don't do any investment within the corporation. Do you do? Are you? Yeah, absolutely. We do. Yeah. We've got uh, some operating funds that we leave there on that in case I need to buy any medical expenses or, or pay anything practice related. But yeah, we, de- we definitely have a, uh, just regular, regular type of, uh, you know, accounts uh, within, within the corp. So uh, there are, you know, you're not, you're not getting like a, uh, pure you know tax deferral in the sense that you would with uh, an rsb right like but uh yeah. but uh, like for example a lot of people who are kind of higher income our rsps are pretty much filled up and i think my wife's tfsa we just started we filled hers up in like a year her whole lifetime tfsa and mine will take like six months to fill up and i haven't touched mine yet and now we have this other bucket uh that the average person doesn't have right they would have to fully realize that income right away kind of thing yeah, it makes a lot of sense, especially for um, professionals with high salary that are working towards FI, because that you can spread that money out over a long period of time, right? You uh, even once you you know, as you said, you're coast fire, but once you are full fire, or fat fire, you can use that those corporate funds and investments to draw down at your at the time and, and amount that you want to to manage your personal taxes, which is really advantageous. The loony doctor is the one who's got a lot, lot more detailed posts on this and understands it on a far higher level than I do and more than I really want to understand it, to be honest. But uh, <laughs> Okay, well, that's a great reference. Thanks. Yeah, but the take-home, to, you know, Toulon didn't read a point as far as your limits within the corp is that the tax structure I outlined uh, basically is intact until your passive earnings within the corp are greater than 50K, which as I'm sure you can do without even calculating on the napkin, that would be 1.25 within that particular bucket uh, at 
current uh, expected ex- expected rates, right? And that's not counting how much you have in your RSP, not counting how much you have in your TFSA. So like that would be like a really nice problem to have and one that I am not close to having. So yeah, that would be a great problem to have. <laughs> so what happens with the taxation of this personal corporation once you reach FI and stop working? If you're no longer earning income, can it still exist? Again, I'm going to just mangle the the terminology in that, right? But there's some way of like transmogrifying the corporation into just like a holding corporation that's no longer actively okay. practicing medicine, but, but still is holding the medic the the the, uh, the money, the funds, uh, and can still be dispersed according to the uh, the dividend model to uh, to the shareholders. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> it's it's so cool to me that you can do this. I, I know others who are self-employed who also use a professional corporation, and I've never fully understood it, but you sure make it sound great. Well, that's again, that's my kind of like very overly reductive kind of understanding of it. Um, if you look at, it's interesting, if you look at different provinces, there's different professions in each place that may or may not have the ability so like doctors and lawyers are usually do, but then there's also like um, other other disciplines, other trades, uh, like pharmacists and, uh, you know, other kind of allied health and, and maybe even accountants. And like, you know, so so the types of professions and jobs that can access this, it, it varies provincially and, and bears researching uh, if you're not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we might have to do a, a deep dive into that one time. I, I think it warrants a whole show because they're like you said, there's a, a group of, you know, there's potentially employed people that could become um, professional corporations for themselves or, or uh, like in my example, I work for different companies, which makes me uh, able to have my own corporation as well. Yeah. The Looney Doctor's blog is a treasure trove. The guy's a genius. I'm sure you could uh, get a lot out of him, assuming he was interested. Yeah. He sounds pretty popular in the Canadian doctor or fire doctor uh, space. He's, he's very well known. So maybe we'll try to get him on the show sometime. While while we're talking about that, do you have any other references for our physician friends out there as far as FI blogs, Canadian centric, things like that? Just off the top of your head, if you can't think of any now, that's totally fine. I was just thinking about the really, I only know the ones that I hear uh, on the US podcasts. Yeah, like Physician on Fire and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Uh, And then I I think you've already interviewed Dr. Firefly. That's the uh, resident. Um, There's a Dr. Networth. I can't remember whether whether they're American or Canadian, but that's the other, yeah, that's Canadian as well. So Dr. Networth is the other, the other big Canadian fully trained uh, doctor. So, but literally between those two and Firefly, I think those are the only three in the, you know, who, who are publicly talking about these issues. Great. Well, we'll look forward to your blog coming out later this year. <laughs> <laughs> you could do it. You have a lot to say. <laughs> yeah, too much, too much to say. <laughs> So, well, that's that's fantastic. Uh, like Money Mechanic said, I think we'll have to do a deeper dive into this professional corporation. Um, sounds like you've got it locked down. So good for you for getting that set up. Oh, thanks. Yeah. My wife and the accountant are doing the heavy lifting. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, there's usually one person who does most of the finances in a, a marriage or a partnership. <laughs> so we'll move on to the next point that you shared, uh, your profession as being uh, one of the ways that you've reached, you're reaching FI, uh, family medicine in particular. And I, I like to speak to this because I have, I know a couple of family doctors and the story they tell me is quite different from what you're seeing here. <laughs> they have 
offices. Each of them owns their own space or rents their own space. And it sounds like they're really being squeezed by the government and just the high cost of real estate and rent. And it sounds like it's really tough to make a go of it as a family doctor. So how is it that you say that it's been so lucrative for for your family? Right. So the regu- the average family doctor is involved in, I guess the term is like a monopsony. So uh, a limited market where there's only one buyer, which is in this case, the government, uh, unless you fully opt out, which nobody does here, uh, which they do in the States sometimes and have concierge medicine. That's a whole other topic. But basically, you are exposed to market forces on the expenses side of the equation. You're an entrepreneur in that sense. But I mean, you got to pay for your building, pay for your, your uh, monthly uh, computer telemedicine license or EMR licensing, pay your the salaries, pay for your certifications. But on the revenue side of the equation, you can't just increase prices because the rates are fixed by your uh, by whatever government entity is uh, you know, is paying uh, your billings. So that's that's the problem. And then typically, when you hear a doctor's billings, I mean, it varies widely or wildly, but typically, whatever they say, there's going to be around a 30% overhead component that's going to be taken off the top as a business expense before it starts to turn into anything that looks like uh, gross income. Having said that, I've been an independent contractor for a while. I was an independent contractor working on the base. Uh, and I did the same job outside of uniform as as when I was wearing uniform. Uh, and so that was basically like a per hour piecework thing. I have uh, several different contracts through different correctional systems. One of which is like basically a five year long contract, which is uh, uh, like a basically a bid, like a 95 page uh, bid uh, that sets out the conditions of the agreement. And anyways, neither the, the take home message is that neither of those have any overhead at all. Uh, and there are certain medical specialties, emergency medicine, anesthesia, there's a few others that are similar in that respect. They have minimal overhead or none. And so whatever their billings are, that turns into their income. But that's that's kind of a very uh, usual situation. But my, I have now have my eggs in three different baskets. I've got uh, contracts with the provincial government, with the federal government, and also with a private company. So, you know, it's a more of a pain in the butt. A lot of driving, a lot of phone calls. I'm kind of wearing multiple hats, you know, but uh, it means that if something happens uh, financially or legally in one of those entities, uh, I'm relatively shielded compared to somebody who's kind of all in and who's hung up their shingle and is doing this cradle to grave style of uh, medicine. Yeah. And that's what most of us think of when we think of a family doctor. And we all hear it's on the decline, but hearing your experience, it sounds like a great way to really earn a lot more in this profession. And how did you find this path? It's atypical for someone going into um, family medicine. How did you find this path? I don't really know. All I can say is I've always been something of a ultra capitalist mercenary. So (laughs) I always somehow find the high paying opportunity and kind of finagle my way, way in type of thing. I'll give you an interesting anecdote about that in a second. Um, but I was moonlighting doing these type of jobs while I was in the military because I wanted to kind of maintain uh, my skills and not just be completely sidelined into the occupational side of military medicine. And so I already had those balls rolling uh, by the time I actually released. And then I was just able to kind of uh, scale those up. As far as the telemedicine, 
I just literally just, you know, Google stuff on the internet, looked in the back of uh, the trade journals and uh, reached out to uh, various companies until I found one that was willing to uh, try me out. Uh, that can go into the uh, location independence side of things, which could be another little mini speaking point. As far as the funny story, when I was in uh, my co-op program doing my uh, undergrad in, in uh, kinesiology, the prof wanted me to stay where I did my fourth year. He wanted me to stay there and work in his lab over the summer. But I told him if I stayed there, I'd have to give up my co-op job. And so he said, well, show me the letter and I'll match your salary. So as a fourth year student, I was making eight grand for the summer. Plus he gave me a, like a month off for my honeymoon. And his PhD student who was te- teaching one of the courses that I was, I was actually taking was being paid five grand. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Well done. But then she was all angry about it. But I said, well, you didn't negotiate. Like you you have to tell them this is what I want and then be willing to walk. But nobody, nobody actually does that, right? They talk about that, but they don't do that because they're afraid of hurting people's feelings or they're afraid of being told no. You know how, you know how how your co-host Ryan isn't afraid to say or do things that are somewhat controversial. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've noticed. Yeah. So I think I think he and I might be kindred spirits in some ways. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> so uh, tell tell us more while we're on this topic. More about the the corrections contracts that you you do. This is interesting, and I honestly I never would have thought that this is a path that a doctor could take. It's completely foreign to me and I'm sure most people. Tell us more about how this job works. Do you physically have to visit prisons and uh, what do you do? Basically, it's um, I think it falls under the uh, somebody has to do it style of medicine (laughs) Uh, or the three D's, if you've ever heard of that Japanese expression, um, dirty, dangerous and demeaning. Right. So, you know, if you're like, you know, a lot of a lot of people would look at what I'm doing and and, and assume that I'm an SJW, you know, and I want to like change the world and and reform these people (laughs) and whatever. I look at it as, you know what, they're people too. They need health care. I'm going to treat each day as, as a, as a new page and uh, I'm going to give them the best, the best, most dignified care that I, that I can within, within my power and influence in that facility. And then at the end of the day, it's an honest day's work for an honest day's pay kind of thing, right. And just kind of move on. So essentially uh, the clicks for the most part are preset blocks of time in the one contract. So uh, if I show up and I'm like, Hey, how many do you got today? They've only got 12 or 15 patients, you know, and it takes me two hours. I, I, I work for two hours and I leave, right? But it's a four-hour clinic. They still required me to, to show up, to drive there and show up and set aside half a day ahead of time, right? So however long it takes to do the job, it takes to do the job. Another one is is by the hour and I have to like, I have to uh, keep track of my time to 15-minute increments. The other thing is there's an on-call component. One of them has an on-call component, which is roughly 12 hours a day, 365. And it, you're basically paid just to be available in case they call. And sometimes they call a lot and sometimes they call not so much. And the other one that I just, for, for provincial, you're basically on call 24-7 for one week out of six. Uh, and it can be quite annoying, quite busy. But while you're on call, you know, there's a lot of hours in a week, right? So, you know, assign any kind of a reasonable level of pay to that hour. And it adds up pretty quickly to the point that on a good day, it feels like passive income. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. You mentioned in the email you sent to us that you have like a you set yourself up with a 
baseline pay that you uh, run your family budget on or your cash flow, and then use all that extra pay that I'm gathering is what you're saying is these on-call periods and things like that that are the extra that you kind of quote unquote call your your side hustle and you can just dump that into your savings and investments, which is a really smart way to do things. And it's, it's really interesting. I like the way that you've sort of customized your 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 weeks, your days, your your hours of work, because the interview we had with Dr. Firefly, it sound it sounds just overwhelming. The amount of work that goes into, you know, she's a resident, but doctors in general, the what I hear is that the working hours and, and burnout is such a reality, but it sounds like you've really customized things for yourself. My in-person hours in the flesh is uh 20 hours a week. And then my my telemedicine, like Skype medicine, is four hours a week. And the rest of it is answering the phone and talking to nurses uh, who have concerns about their patients and saying, oh, tell me about that patient. Oh, have you tried this? Did you do that? No, I didn't do that yet. Okay, do that and call me back. Okay, I did that. Okay, now we could do this, you know, blah, 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 blah. And like, yeah, you're working. Yeah, you're thinking, but you're not like right there. Like I, I'm literally like in the middle of a workout. It's like, oh man, the stupid phone. Okay. Cut my, put my, <laughs> my, my squad set short, right. Go over, try to like catch my breath. So it doesn't sound like I'm like, you know, doing something intimate or something, you know, inappropriate. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, answer the call and then, and then go back to whatever it was that I was doing. Right. So. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. It sounds pretty ideal the way you've got it set up. So why would more doctors not choose this path? Because family medicine is not easy, especially these days. The government's paying less, the expenses are getting higher. Why wouldn't more family doctors choose this path? It probably some of the same reasons why more family doctors are not in the military, right? I've had people ask me, they're always fascinated. Oh, blah, 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 blah. And I tell them a little bit. I even tell them like, I even tell them about all the gravy, right? I even tell them like, this is how much you can make, like blah, blah, blah. And I was like, there's one center that I have an avenue in that is a very big facility that always needs more people. I can easily set you up to work a few casuals, no commitment, see if you like it. No, they, they just, the, there's a significant fear factor, right? I mean, you're literally sitting across the table from the real deal, right? Like some of these guys, they're not just posturing with their gang. They've killed two or three people, right? And uh, especially the ones who have like, you know, 30 plus years or life, you've got to think like they have nothing to lose. Like they literally could kill you and then they would get like a week or two in seg and then their life would go on, but just like it was beforehand. And they would always have that, that fond memory of them killing you who they don't like. Right. Yeah. That's pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah. And now are you alone with them when you treat them? No, we've always, there's always a nurse, but the nurse isn't like a, isn't like a Marine or something like that, right? Like it's, it's, yeah. it's a nurse, right? So there's no guard. There are guards. And the one place the guard is kind of like a couple doorways away, but with an earshot and they could run in. In the other place, there's a guard that can almost see you if you just kind of lean forward, but they're in this <laughs> bubble and they're not allowed to leave the bubble. They're, they would actually batten down the hatches because they don't want the uh, cons to get the keys. So then they would basically oh, wow. call in a response and then, some other guys would have to show up. But literally this one place I've worked, the patient comes in, they lock the door and it's not, it's like, it's like the suicide locks for people who don't want their house breaking in. So they, you know, you have no deadbolt on the inside. You actually have to insert a key to open it. So the nurse has one key and then, and there's one other key that one of the guards has it. And hopefully he's not like on coffee break or like taking a dump or whatever, like when you need them to respond. Right. 
So literally, if that patient got news they didn't like and overpowered, you know, the nurse and me, there'd be no way for them to get in the room. But luckily, oh it's a 20 foot ceiling and there's a gun port on the upper half. So they could, even if they can't get in, they could always run in with a rifle and, and take some shots. But of course, <laughs> you might be, you know, getting, you know, collateral fire, right? That's rare, really rare. I've, I've had only, I've had one patient lunge across the table at me. Like one patient lunge across the table with intent. I just sat there looking at him, didn't move a muscle. And the guards grabbed him at the last second and uh, wrestled him to the ground. Wow. So wh- why is it that they can't have a guard right there? Is it just for confidentiality reasons? Yeah, it depends on the patient. Right? Like, like if they 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 modulate their their uh, level of security, right? So, so yeah, if the guy's re- if the guy's recently been a bad boy, you know, he might be cuffed uh, behind behind his back, and uh, might, there, one the one reason when there was a guy cuffed behind the back with three guards right there, right? But sometimes they're not, right? And the thing is, you can't so-called punish them or have them on like high alert status like indefinitely you know they're all good sometimes but like if you were like if you were like really determined you know it wouldn't be that hard to strategize you, you just you know pretend like you're all calm and chill right and then you know do what you need to do at that at that moment right so but it, again it's it's rare it's rare like it should be in the back of your mind like like when i'm examining them uh, like if I'm going to listen to their, their, their breath sounds or chest or something and I lean forward, I always have one hand, I have two fingers on their shoulder and the other hand is using the stethoscope and I just have little things like that I do so that like if they suddenly tense or suddenly move, I'm going to get that feedback hmm. and at least have a chance, right? So it sounds to me like your military training, basic training, stuff like that probably works really well in this type of situation where you you have more confidence uh, that you may be able to react and like you said you you've got some physical contact so you can feel the person's if they tense up or things like that yeah i mean obviously like some of these guys are 240 pound gorillas it's not about whether of course they could if it was like mono mono they're gonna they're gonna win but it's a it's a matter of like whether you look like you can handle yourself it's a matter of whether you can be calm it's a matter of whether you can, and i'm very fair like i have the, i say well normally when i come to this situation this is what i do with the patient and they all compare notes they all know this is going to happen they got discontinued because they were diverting their medication they're going to be cut off for a month and then we'll try restarting it if they divert it again they're going to get cut off for three months because that's what it did another guy so you just have to be very it's like being a lion tamer right most of the time, you know, if you're if you're calm and if you're predictable and if you're fair, uh, you know, you can just you can just avoid that. You can just avoid all that. Yeah, by by just being calm and 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 by kind of taking control, but being very polite. I call everybody sir or ma'am, and uh, you know, I'm just like, well, I'm sorry, but these are our options. I know you want this, but I'm going to offer you A or B. And if they get mad and leave, I'm like, well, let me know if you change your mind. You can tell the nurse. And you know they'll call me and we'll do it right. So. Fascinating. Yeah, and good for you. I admire you for doing this work because you're right. Someone has to do it, and it sounds like you you have a lot of compassion for these people, and you're doing your best. And I'm not sure if you're compartmentalizing it somehow to deal with the the fear side of it and the the hard parts. But it sounds like you've managed to be successful with navigating this kind of situation. I think it's time for a quick break now. We'll be right back. Hey guys, I think you've heard of EQ Bank before. Of course, we're all customers. Yeah, happy customers. I love using their EQ Bank Savings Plus account as an all-in-one checking and savings account. 
a savings account that offers an everyday 2.45% interest rate with no everyday banking fees plus no minimum account balances? Count me in. Right? And I've already used TransferWise, who they're now partnered with. You can send international money transfers for a fully transparent fee that are up to eight times cheaper, all from your EQ Bank Savings Plus account. Canadians on the path to FI will love the simplicity of EQ Bank. To find out more, head to exploreficanada.ca forward slash EQ Bank. So should we switch gears to living like normal people? Yeah. Tell us about that. Tell us about item number seven. This is awesome. You got the quote is, we try to live like normal people as opposed to like doctors. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Yeah. So, I mean, I dress like a bum when I'm off. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. I go into the Home Depot or go wherever. And, uh, you know, I'm from a, I've got friends in low places, right? Like I, I come from a very blue collar background. I had roughly 25 jobs before anything like medicine. Uh, you know, and they involved stuff like retail and sales and factory work and security and just, you know, so I've, I, I know what real work is. I don't particularly enjoy it. That's why I'm doing what I do, but uh, you know, if I have to do it, I, and you know, I can do it. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, yeah, we splurge as far as Mr. Money Mustache is concerned. Like I told you about, like, you know, we have, uh, we, we bought like new, a new truck and a new SUV. They weren't top of the line, but they were, you know, they were new vehicles, which, you know, we're going to, we're going to run them down until they're, you know, until they're dust basically. Um, but like our house is kind of considered, you know, pretty average for the area where they were in. When I go to pick up my kids uh, from the private school, like every single vehicle is like an Escalade or a Suburban or a, um, whatever the name of that giant Toyota is. I forget what that one's called. It sounds like a tree. Oh, it's a Sequoia. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Everyone, <laughs> so these, these, I'm like, I, I'm like these, these vehicles are like 80 K each, like base model, right? Before the, for sure. Before the Belgian sure. whistles. Right. And I'm like, man, these people are, and these people are, you know, like teachers and like pharmacists and like whatever. Right. So I'm just like, man, like either these people, you know what it is about conspicuous wealth, right? Either, either the person has a huge net worth of 10 million plus or they have like a lot of debt and they're highly leveraged kind of thing. Right. And even when I drop off my yeah. kids at birthday parties, it's like, Oh, this is like a giant acreage. They've got a three car garage, like, you know, fancy pants house with like a separate detached shop building with like the gigantic garage door and the man cave inside kind of thing. Right. And I'm just like, huh. And then I check MLS later just to look on the neighborhood or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, this, that house is probably one to 1.5 easily. Right. So Big hat, no cattle. Yeah. <laughs> I've always like, and I'm, I don't want this to come off as as bad against Alberta, but I I have spent time up there, and there's is this this big truck, big boat. Like, the, I think a lot of it comes from the oil patch money. When there was lots of money around, there was lots of money spent. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, though, it becomes an arms race, right? Like, and yeah. and, and I don't mean it from a conspicuous consumption point of view. I mean it from it like I don't want to die. Uh, during a collision on the highway, so right, you right. really you really don't want to drive uh, a Honda Civic or a smart car uh, in the Edmonton area. Like, so when they do those crash tests, everyone's like, "This car is so safe." I'm like, "No, that's only if that car hits a brick wall or another car its same size." You take the the least <laughs> the least safe pickup truck and drive it against the most safe Honda Civic, and the people in the Honda Civic just get submarined. Like, it doesn't people don't get that right, but. That's that's the truth, right? You want to at least be 
you don't want to have necessarily have a lift kit or have like a, you know, like a three quarter ton or anything like that, but you, you probably want to have like a little bit of height and a little bit of mass and an all wheel drive or four wheel drive capability, uh, depending on where you're driving just because, and I mean, it, honestly, I'm going to, I'll pay to, to get the synthetic oil. I'll pay to get my oil changed more frequently. Like I've got, we've got a week of negative 30 with a negative 40 windshield. Do I really want my car to break down to the side of the road? and then call and wait for like AMA or whatever. Like that's going to be like a significant hardship if, if that happens. I think you speak to a really good point there. And, and this is one of the reasons we want to do the show is to get people's voice from different parts of Canada, because you can't just peg the FI journey for people that live in a more temperate area of BC or East coast. The, we all have these unique situations and you make a great point. It's minus 30 you that is the worst thing that could possibly happen is if your car breaks down at night on the highway that'd be that'd be terrible but you need to factor that into into your budget and your your fi planning for for where you live right exactly yeah yeah and that that speaks to how mindful you are about your choices because i know you are a mr money mustache fan and you know he's all about you know, making fun of car clowns and <laughs> you would be considered a car clown driving these big trucks but you bought the cars that you have for very specific reasons and it's for safety and the environment and it makes sense in your case and you didn't go all out and buy the crazy luxury versions of these trucks you bought practical versions and it shows to me that the fire community is on the whole very mindful about their choices they're value-based and it's not just because they want to spend the money or just because they like luxury there there are often very good reasons behind our spending absolutely so i just want to pick on this other point you've got in here you've got it figured out to average out to a dollar 90 per meal can you just share a tip do you guys meal plan do you have some uh magic formula that you do you're feeding five people which is pretty impressive for roughly 200 dollars a week yeah um i don't know like uh my wife is one who does all the cooking uh and uh she's asian and uh, so half our food is kind of ethnic and the other half i guess is quote unquote canadian we don't really i mean she, she'll comparison shop to a certain degree like oh i was planning on making steak but oh look salmon's on sale for half price and let's let's have salmon instead um so she'll be flexible that way and we have enough deep stores that uh and she she knows exactly how much we have like you know how many kilograms of rice or whatever um so she can make adjustments uh on the fly but i mean yeah i mean she'll, she'll, we go to regular grocery stores we go to the asian i don't know if, if chrissy's ever heard of like tnt or whatever like they, yes. i think yeah that you know the whole asian thing right mm-hmm yeah, I mean, she does, she, you know, cook pretty large portions, but I mean, we have a big family and the kids are all eating more now. So we don't really get to freeze that much. It's kind of like, that's enough for like, you know, one and a half or for lucky kind of two meals. But yeah, I mean, honestly, like the big thing that I rail against and I get very much judged by my peers is this whole like, food security, food insecurity, and this whole idea of like, oh, like, um, poor people are fat because nutritious food is so expensive and all they can afford is McDonald's. And I was like, last time I checked, like beans and rice were like really cheap and not that hard to cook either. Like, like literally, you know, if you can YouTube how to like, you know, fix your car, I'm pretty sure you can YouTube how to cook beans and rice. (laughs) Like, yeah. And, 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 and if you want to lose weight, it's even easier because you can just intermittent fast. So now you only have to worry about two meals a day instead Mm -hmm. of three. 
and you could use that other time to forward your career or to like go to the gym or watch Netflix or whatever, right? So honestly, like rice, beans, maybe a multivitamin, some green tea, like I, I don't, you know, and then whatever produce you can get, you know, inexpensively that week. Uh, I had friends in university who had food budgets of 25 bucks, you know, for one person, but like 25 bucks a week, right? Yeah. And I actually, I would have to say our spending per meal is similar to yours, but I, I think a couple of the other things that work in our favor is volume. You know, when you have a family and when we host students, we can buy in bulk uh, more often and that is one cost savings. But also a lot of ethnic cooking incorporates a lot more veggies and uh, carbs. So you you are saving money that way because you're eating a lot less meat. And that is where a big part of most people's grocery budgets come in. Yeah. And my favorite protein, which isn't that expensive, is like eggs. Mm -hmm. So like literally I have like oatmeal and throw two boiled eggs that are built ahead of time in it and a, and a bit of raisins. Bam, there's my like proteinaceous low GI breakfast. And then your lunch is left over from supper or I'll like throw in some crap like, uh, you know, no name burritos or something like that. One or two of those. Uh, and then, yeah, the ethnic food supper. Yeah, it mystifies me. Like as much as we should teach people about financial independence, like we should really teach people like basic life skills and cooking and stuff like that. Because some people, they literally just don't know how to do basic cooking. I'm not saying be a gourmet chef. I'm saying like dad cooking, right? Where, where if that recipe has more than 10 ingredients, you just don't even try it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's also the processed foods, you know, the prepackaged processed foods, those they're quick, but they're so unhealthy and they're expensive. They add up over time. Absolutely. So uh, to wrap up, I just want to tie everything together and weave your story uh, into one nice little bow. <laughs> Through your life, you've made a lot of very unique decisions, whether it was going to university when your blue collar community and your family was almost against it. And you chose to do the military training and the type of doctor you are, and that you live like normal people and not like doctors. Like All of these are unusual choices, depending on which community you live in. But for you, it's been unusual. How have you taken this path so confidently and are you spreading this mindset to your children? Uh, definitely, we, we are talking to the children. We try to talk about uh, uh, money matters. I try to talk about even the difference between middle class and upper class and, you know, working for a living, exchanging your time versus, you know, investing in turning your your dollars into employees and then I talk about some of the middle class myths you know like the whole idea of like your guidance counselors are going to tell you if you work a day and you know if you work in a job you love you'll never work a day in your life and I was like I don't know if those people are all on drugs or if they you know live in a different place <laughs> than I do but you may you may temporarily have a job like that but there's no guarantee that it's going to stay like that you know five years ten years down the road type of thing and uh yeah so we talk about stuff and and you know the kids have uh, uh allowances they can make more money through uh through chores around the house they get interest or they get interest calculated against them if they ever overdraw to the negative which they hardly ever do um and then if we talk about like kind of family purchases uh you know we'll say like that sounds pretty pretty fun to have and then they're yeah we should get them like do you guys want to contribute do you want to put some skin in the game and then they may they may want to they may not we i just looked at you can buy a um, wheel type thing, but for your cats, 
right? And with shipping, it would be like 320 bucks. Like that's pretty expensive, you know? But if all of you guys want to chip in, you know, maybe we can buy that for the cats. And so now they're thinking about it, deciding whether it's worth it or not, and, you know, kind of making these kind of decisions. As far as going outside the norm, uh, I guess that's, I've just been that kind of do my own thing kind of person or very high in the disagree, in, in, in very low in the agreeableness index as far as <laughs> Jordan Peterson. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, I just happen to hold the minority viewpoint on like a lot of things. And I never argue for the sake of arguing. It's just, I unfortunately am extremely socially conservative, not unfortunately from a personal integrity point of view, but unfortunately as far as ease of going through life point of view. So, you know, I, I'm not, uh, I, I'm comfortable saying no, and I'm comfortable saying no, thanks. I'm going to do this uh, a different way. And, uh, you know, hopefully I had, I'm sure I had help along the way and divine intervention and, you know, uh, support like from my family and, and friends. And, uh, yeah, you know, we, uh, you got to make your own bed and then lie in it. Yeah. It sounds to me like you crafted such a great, uh, life story there all, all the way along that when you found FI and Mr. Money Mustache and fire, it must've felt like a pretty natural fit from everything that you'd been doing before that. Yeah, it was, it was just like, oh, look, other people are also like this, but you just, before the internet age, you just never met anybody like that. And that's how people can get together. If you have some weird niche hobby or something like that, like you like to, I don't know, build and fly quadcopters or something like, you know, like there may be nobody in your small town who's into that and they think you're just kind of weird, but like it's all of a sudden the internet, you can, you can connect with like-minded people, whatever it is you're into. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I think it's, an amazing life that you've led and we would love to hear more from you if if anyone has questions can they ask you in the show notes oh absolutely yeah just uh yeah just notify me you know i can uh whatever it is like add a comment or reply or whatever however it works yeah yeah because i i think you're there, there's so much that's actionable in your story and it it's not you know, public knowledge. A lot of it is not out there that it's easily found. So I think it'd be great to have you as a resource in case anyone's interested in anything that you've done. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, yeah, nice to, to virtually meet you both. Yes, <laughs> we had a great time. Yeah, thanks so much. Pleasure chatting with you today. And Chrissy, are we skipping our questions this episode? I don't know. What do you think? Well, I did get, I did see a uh, end of an email where uh, I think it specifically said long live Tim Hortons. <laughs> yes. Okay. Let's do them. Let's do them. Are you team fire or team five? Uh, definitely team fire. Uh, oh, yeah. uh, I love that you're coast fire. This is, that's, <laughs> that's my team. Coast fire is my team. I love it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> right on. I always ask a do it yourself type question. So you've got new vehicles. You probably don't do any uh, need any work done on those uh, around the house. Are you a handy type person? Is there any way that you save money uh, doing things yourself? Yeah, I mean, we'll do uh, we'll you know we'll do like the first approach at trying to fix something. We're a little more careful if it's kind of plumbing or uh, electrical. But you know, I can, I've installed my own ceiling fans. I've put in dimmer switches and stuff like that. I have my own toilet and sink um plumber snakes you know what i mean like that kind of like basic stuff i'm like you know once i've done all the easy low-hanging fruit i still can't fix it okay fine i'll pay the guy who costs 300 bucks just for gracing my doorstep with his presence and you know <laughs> that point. 
That's awesome. You know, that's, that's awesome. And I think it does make a, a big difference over the long term to pick up those skills. And like you referenced earlier, you know, you can find YouTube on most of this stuff now. So, okay. The final question to wrap up the episode, uh, Ryan always likes to know what your favorite order at Tim Hortons is. I would go with the medium regular with the espresso shot. Nice. I like adding the espresso shot too. Right on. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your time. And I uh, hope it was valuable for our listeners today. All right. Take care. Stay warm. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find all our show notes at explorifycanada.ca. Do you like what you're hearing? Help us grow by sharing the show with friends and family. Please subscribe and leave us a comment or review on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us at our own blogs, figarage.ca, canadianfire.ca, or eatsleepbreathefi.com. Our music today was provided by Purple Planet. We'll be back with another episode soon. We'll talk then.